Welcome to the Zetamar Weekly Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Rain. The podcast is released every Saturday and features news and analysis from both the Zetamar team and special guests. Sign up to our newsletter at zetamarnews.substack.com or through our main website, zetamar.com, to receive the podcast by email. You can also find us on podcast apps and on Spotify, which is currently the easiest way of subscribing to the show and making sure you don't miss an episode. Today we've got a jam-packed podcast following some of the week's most important events, including analysis on the Cabo Delgado conflict and the announcement of local elections next year. First though, we go to editor of Zetamar News, Tom Bowker, who's been speaking with experts on the sale of a huge coal mining project in Tete province to Indian company Jindal. The mine has been controversial ever since it opened more than a decade ago for the environmental and social impact it's had, particularly given a lack of transparency from either the company or the government. With this new deal, there are fears things could get even worse. The Mozambique government this week approved the sale of the Moetis coal mining project and the associated logistics mega-project, the Nakala Logistics Corridor, to Vulcan Resources, an unlisted Mauritian subsidiary of Indian coal and steel company Jindal. The sale means large-scale coal mining will continue for now in Tet province, which was the government's priority, but which is highly controversial for a number of reasons. Joining us now is Erica Mendes of Mozambican environmental pressure group Justice Ambiental. Hi, Erica. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for coming on. Um, we were talking quite a bit at the time this sale was first announced. Um, and I know Justice Ambiental also published an article by Estacio Valoy, an investigation into some of the environmental and social issues caused by the mining in Murtis. And more recently, uh, Justice Ambiental were one of the signatories to an open letter calling for the government to be more transparent around the sale process and also um, to give more detail on the environmental effects that the miners had and continues to have in Moetis. So how do you feel today now that government has approved the sale? Have any of those demands or requests that you guys made at the time, do you feel any of them have been met by the government? Yeah, well, of course, this is definitely not good, good news. It's quite disappointing to see that Actually, we haven't had any response from from the government, from the ministries, from any of the entities that we sent the letter. We have been making a lot of denounces, showing that there's a lot of outstanding issues that Valu should solve before leaving, before selling the, the assets. But there's been no information whatsoever in terms of how will all these issues be, be resolved. We even asked for a meeting with the minister when we sent the letter, and we have been waiting for the, for this meeting for more than a month now. In the meantime, the minister has changed, um, as you probably know. So, yeah, so this decision comes in a record time of 20 days since the new minister has been appointed. So clearly this was on the top of, of his priorities um, as, as he was assuming the cabinet. So yeah, it's quite disappointing to see that all the, the noise that civil society and the affected people have been doing is just seems to be turning in nothing. Right, yeah, it, it, it's been fairly obvious, I suppose, that the government uh, was just very keen for a solution that allowed the project to keep, to keep running uninterrupted. I suppose yeah. it's about jobs, but also about revenues and tax revenues and export revenues. 
But what, what are your what are your sort of biggest concerns, I suppose, about the issues currently around the project? And do you think they're going to get worse under the new the new ownership? Yeah, well, I would say they probably tend to get worse. We know the the background of the Jindal Group. They've been operating in Tete. They've been operating the mine with families still living inside inside the mine. And uh, as we know, Vulcan, the, the new company that has bought uh, Valus assets, is part of the Jindal Group. So yeah, we, we probably are expecting it to get worse, uh, but that doesn't mean that Val was um, operating in a respectful manner, n- not at all. Um, another thing that has been quite concerning is that we know other sale processes that happened in the same province, in that for example, when, when ICVL bought uh, Riversdale uh, mines and all the problems that were caused by the previous company and the government said the same, that the new company would, would solve all the problems, but that didn't happen. And now we are hearing it again and they even give uh, the example of, of, of the sale to ICVL to say that things will happen smoothly and the new company will assume the, the problems just like ICVL did, which is not the case. So, yeah, it's, it's quite concerning. There are a lot of issues from legal cases that even us at Justice Ambiental, we have some pending legal cases against Vale. Uh, other, like uh, the Mozambican Bar Association and other entities also have other cases. And a lot of people are still waiting for compensation because they have been expelled from the lands they used to practice agriculture or uh, brick making. So there's a lot of processes ongoing and we really don't know what's going to happen now. Mm. What's the case you have uh, against Val at the moment? We have a case trying to have access to public interest information regarding their environmental plans and reports. Uh, this case has been ongoing for, for a few years and, and, and Val has been, uh, um, they did not accept the, the, the initial uh, ruling from, from the court, so they appealed. Uh, because they don't want to uh, disclose their environmental reports. So this is one of the cases. And the other case is uh, regarding health impacts uh, caused by the company's pollution. So we have these two cases right now. Mm, okay. So one of, the, one of the issues I explored at the time in an article which um, has been behind the paywall, but today we're just making it free now for everyone to read. And I'll, I'll put a link to that in the show notes is about the the way the deal is structured and Jindal are not buying it through their main uh, entity, Jindal Steel and Power Limited, it's, which is uh, listed on the Mumbai Stock Exchange. They're buying it through a Mauritian subsidiary. You noticed and just pointed out to me before we started recording that in the initial announcement by Vale, they, they said they were selling it to something called Vulcan Minerals, which we weren't able to find if, that, if such a company even existed. This latest announcement from the government corrects that to Vulcan Resources, which we had traced to being a company incorporated on the island of Mauritius, which is a notorious uh, tax and secrecy haven. Um, but there are there concerns raised by, um, by the article that I wrote, but from people I spoke to, this was a way of getting some of the environmental and social liabilities associated with a project like this off of the books of the publicly listed Indian entity. Do you think those are valid concerns? Is that, is that a, a worrying sign for how uh, Jindal are going to approach this project? 
Yes, for sure. I think the, the secrecy around this wholesale process is very concerning. Um, and as you said, we haven't been really able to figure out what company is this. So we know just from the from Valis press release that the company is part of the Jindal group. Uh, but we really couldn't find this Vulcan minerals um, anywhere. So now they call it Vulcan resources, which, which we found. But of course, it's registered in Mauritius, which not only is a tax haven, but we have, um, Mozambique has a bilateral investment treaty with Mauritius that it's actually one of the worst in terms of protecting state sovereignty. So there's a lot of schemes that could be playing out here, including, of course, concerns about the carbon footprint of the, of the global value chain of, of the Jindal group. So as climate concerns um, grow, um, and they should be growing, we can see that a lot of these fossil fuel companies are just uh, trying to find a way to continue with business as usual and finding all kinds of market mechanisms and unlisted entities and so on to try to uh, pretend or to greenwash uh, their image. So yeah, there's a lot of concerns around that. And then I suppose uh, a, a, one argument in favour of this, this deal just going ahead is that it, it saves a whole load of jobs up in, um, up in Tet and Mertes. Do, do you accept that argument? Do you think it's, it's far more important to keep, keep the project running than to risk having it shut down and the unemployment and hardship that would bring to, to Mertes? Of course, we don't want to see the workers being sacked and no, no compensation. So this has to be dealt with very carefully. Um, but this is related to the whole narrative that we've been advancing around a just transition. So whenever we are phasing out fossil fuel uh, projects, of course, we need to, uh, to be concerned also about the workers. Uh, so this means that they need to be included in a whole process of transition. And shutting down uh, uh, dirty energy projects, of course, needs to come with opening up other kinds of, of opportunities for, for employment. From the, from the investigations we have been involved with and many other groups in, in, in civil society and academics, we can know for sure that the number of people that Vale has impacted negatively is much more than the number of people that it ever has uh, employed or even benefited if we even include our, our political and economic elites. So yeah, we are literally talking about thousands of people that are suffering from, from the pollution, from uh, land grabs, from loss of livelihoods, from police violence. So if we add all of that up, it just, it just doesn't, uh, the, the equation doesn't add right. So we would definitely, we would want to shut down coal projects, but this needs to, to be made in a responsible manner. That's why we have been saying that, of course, we would want Vale to leave and other coal companies to leave, but not in any terms. So they need to, uh, um, of course, resolve all the issues they have, pay compensation, repair the environment, reopen access to rivers and to lands that they've uh, fenced, uh, and then they are more than welcome to leave. Well, these issues are not going to be going away anytime soon, unfortunately, so we will keep following them on Zitima News. There's a, potentially a story brewing, I think, about um, workers' unrest about being transferred to from Valley to their new employer, so we'll keep an eye on that one as well. And perhaps we'll come back to speaking with you again, Erica. But for now, thanks ever so much for coming on the Zismar podcast. Thank you very much, Tom. It's been a pleasure. 
Well, back in February, I sought out the views of Tim Buckley, a renowned expert on energy transition issues in India, China, and his home country, Australia, where he heads up the think tank Climate Energy Finance. He explained why India is the natural buyer for Mozambique and coal, even though they too are talking about gradually weaning themselves off the dirty fuel. He started by explaining how India's companies ended up on a big international coal buying spree, which also included the deal which saw ICVL buy Rio Tinto's coal mines in Moatis in 2014. It was actually done at the request of the government of India a decade ago that these Indian companies go offshore and try and secure coal deposits because India couldn't produce enough coal itself. Mm. Uh, Now, a decade later, the environment's changed and Prime Minister Modi is always talking about how his target is energy independence from fossil fuel imports. Um, But the reality is they've got a whole lot of coal power plants that are stranded on, uh, on the coast of India that are nowhere near coal mines domestically. And so they will be importing coal while those coal power plants continue to operate. But um, yeah, Jindal obviously was maybe thinking it was going to get a coking coal mine, but uh, they probably didn't read the health warning. The the markets aren't stupid. Mm. Um, Okay, maybe in India, coal is not a dirty word, but the rest of the world and India is very, very reliant on global capitalism. and I think India is going to embrace the massive decarbonisation opportunities with both hands, but they're going to require a trillion dollars of infrastructure capital over the next two decades, and that's going to come from the global private capital system, primarily 99% of that or 95% of that will come from private global capital. And um, if they've got a choice between someone who's doing clean projects and someone who's doing clean and dirty, then they'll go the um, the clean player. And this it, is not going to go away. So, I mean, I'm very much expecting Adani will end up having to do a, we will no longer build new coal mines or coal power plants pledge by the end of this year. I just think the pressure, I, I know, like even the conversations I was having with indirectly with them last week, they, they just are trying to find the right time. And, in some respects, I can understand their problem because they are aligned and crony capitalism is very much alive and kicking. But for Adani to come out and be anti-coal is actually really politically difficult because Prime Minister Modi hasn't pledged peak coal as yet. And so when some, I'm maybe going off on a little bit of a tangent there, but Ijun Dahl is going to have the same issues. Before we turn to our second feature today, about the conflict in Cabo Delgado, we've got time to look at a couple of other news stories from the week, including analysis from one of our in-house analysts, Mozambican journalist Fernando Lima. On Tuesday, the government approved the date for municipal elections next year. They'll be held on 11th of October. But in most places, it won't be much of a contest, as Fernando explained. One thing I think it's kind of a, a very unfortunate thing is that the opposition is in shambles. And so mm. if the, the elections will take place in one year, one uh, one year and a half, well, I think the opposition needs to be, to get organized and be much better because uh, I don't think they are organizing enough at this point. And also because of uh, all the economic crisis this country is going through, 
it also it's reflected on political parties that usually uh, live on contributions and uh, they really are in a terrible, terrible uh, situation to go for elections. My hope is that in some, uh, in some uh, municipalities, these uh, citizens' groups just organize themselves, try to put up some kind of uh, candidacy for the, the elections, which their record is not so, uh, it's not so bad, despite the, the general political system, it favors mostly traditional political parties instead of citizens' associations. Has there ever been a citizens' association come anywhere near success? Yeah, for example, when uh, Renamo decide not to run for elections in Beta, these uh, citizens' groups, which I cannot recall the, the name, they got a significant number of seats in Beta. There have been uh, citizens' groups in Angosh, in uh, Nakala, in Ampula. Yeah, there are a, a number of examples of citizens' groups running for elections. Forestry operators criticised the government this week for not checking if the timber used in state construction projects is cut down legally. They claimed that up to 95% of timber used in state projects could be illegal. Yeah, it makes it makes sense, but it's a little bit uh, bureaucratic because uh, can you imagine uh, uh, the, the state is criticised because they do not have enough inspection. Uh, on the quality of uh, the works they they request from uh, private contractors, if they would go to the detail to check, can you tell me where your cement is coming from? Eventually, the cement is also illegal. Where your uh, uh, sand is coming from is the the areiro, the place where you get the area sand, is uh, legalized. Eventually, it's not, not legalized. Where is your stones uh, coming from? You will get, you will end up in a mess. Basically, uh, the state or the inspectors from the state try to control the quality of what they request to, to, to be done, not going to the detail. And I think the timber is the... The, uh, the, the same thing and uh, personally I don't think that the, the, the quantity of timber being used in uh, the, uh, construction or uh, projects run by the state are uh, a, a kind of uh, the majority of the works being, being done unfortunately uh, the wood that is uh, being uh, cut down are the wood that are being exported legally or illegally. And I think that, that uh, the authorities should should center their attention in this kind of the, the, that portion of the wood, not if uh, the, the wood for construction is, is illegal. Well, that's my that's my view. I think I disagree slightly. I don't think it would be too hard for the government to say, if you want to be a state supplier, and they have a register of approved suppliers, you have to prove your supply chain is all legal. No, 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 no. That is true. 
meaning uh, you need to provide uh, invoices and receipts and uh, and everything. It's not that you just uh, uh, arrive there and you don't as the, the same way for the the yeah. labor force and and everything. Yes. So you uh, can also regard, be required to prove that you're supplying, you're buying your raw materials from a company which has its environmental licenses and so on. In that regard, yes. But uh, again, you have the <laughs> the invoices and the receipts and so. But uh, you know, uh, it doesn't does does not mean that uh, everything is comes from the right places. Sa same same thing. There is a lot of, especially in uh, uh, big projects, there is a lot of stolen uh, gasoline. Mm. So you you have half invoiced and half non-invoiced because some of the the gasoline have been bought, you know, in a in a funny way uh, because the shoppers. The way the shoppers work is like that, man. So even in road construction and so, it could, uh, especially small small uh, contractors. I don't think uh, even the Chinese in big construction, because the, 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 the figures are so big that you can rely on uh, stolen materials or stolen uh, items. But more contractors, yes, they can... Uh, rely on the, those kind of If you're enjoying the podcast, please don't forget to subscribe to the Zitamar Daily Briefing and update on all the big stories in Mozambique every weekday. We're now going to turn to the Cabo Gado conflict with a conversation between Zitamar editor Tom Bauker and Piers Pigu, an analyst on the Cabo Ligado project. Cabo Ligado is a joint project between Zitamar News, Mediafax and Aklet, which monitors the conflict in Cabo Delgado. We've just published our latest monthly report in which Piers took a deep dive into attempts to get outside funding from Western powers for the military assistance being provided by Rwanda and the Southern African Development Community, SADC. Piers, thanks for joining us. I want to start with um, by asking... How long have these deployments got left if they don't get any outside financing, the Rwandans and the, the SADC deployments? Well, uh, the Rwandan deployment, uh, it, it, let's start with that, is it's unclear how much longer it can go on for. Uh, the Rwandans publicly insist that they have been self-financing and with 2,000 troops and uh, uh, a thousand police on the ground in in Cabo Delgado. It, this is a very costly affair. It's interesting that very few Cabo Delgado watchers believe the Rwandans that they are financing this, that they have the economic muscle uh, to sustain a deployment which is now uh, in its eighth month. So, but the fact that they have reached out in December to the European Union funding through the European Peace Facility indicates that, that finances are tight, but they're looking for a longer-term underwriting of their operations in uh, Mozambique. So we, we don't really know very much about that at this stage. We can, we can come back in this conversation to what might be possible from the Europeans. With respect to Salmon and SADC, the Salmon operation is uh, a smaller operation, just over a thousand personnel on the ground, and it is self-funded by SADC member states uh, at the moment. And there's 
And this comes out of existing budgets. So, for example, the biggest contributor uh, is South Africa. So there's no additional funding that has been put uh, towards this by South Africa. So in theory, it could continue to fund its complement out of its existing budget. Uh, it's not entirely clear how that's being dealt with by other countries, although what we have seen in recent weeks is some of those countries saying, look, we can't continue to afford uh, uh, with these operations. Lesotho, for example, has indicated uh, that it has finite resources to continue with this. Uh, so a few other countries have been stepping up to the plate, uh, the Namibians, the Zambians, and so forth. But it's very limited deployments uh, and, and limited financing. So what we've got at the moment from the SADC side is uh, kind of counterinsurgency on the cheap, and that could probably be retained uh, for some time to come, certainly within the next three to six months, we could see that happening. Uh, they can continue funding that. But uh, ideally, to be able to expand their operation to uh, what was recommended uh, in terms of the SADC deployment, they would need additional funding. Are there any SADC members that have yet to contribute that you would have expected to see? I'm thinking about maybe Angola and uh, Zimbabwe, who have made some contribution but haven't been haven't made a significant troop contribution i think no uh, you're quite correct angola has a handful of people in there and its major contribution has been with airlift uh, capacity uh, but there is not a complement of infantry troops on the ground so to speak zimbabwe uh, is is a little bit of an oddity in this situation it, it, it in theory doesn't have troops on the ground although there's been speculation about Zimbabwean operators from their special forces and so forth on the ground for a year or so. What we do know is that they have provided some training, uh, limited training, but a bigger training operation which was expected and and uh, uh, referred to in our copy and certainly in, in conversations with our Zimbabwean sources uh, has not materialized. This was supposedly to be a an additional component to SAMIN. And uh, whilst we hear that there's been some uh, limited amount of training inside Zimbabwe itself, the fact that there isn't a proper training operation or an ex expanded training operation is probably to do with uh, a lack of funds and the fact, of course, that the uh, Zimbabwean fiscus is uh, uh, one of the most uh, uh, unstable and, and compromised in the region. And do they, we know the Rwandans have got, actually got a request in to the EU. Have, have SADC as well, has the SAMIM as well put in a formal request? There are requests from both uh, SAMIM uh, and from the Rwandans, but they're to different uh, funding pools. The SAMIM funding uh, request has gone through the AU and is uh, uh, to the Emergency Response Fund. And that relates to a relatively small amount of money, a few million euros, to develop civilian military relations and competencies and capacity for the salmon operation. It's not a funding request for underwriting the operation. Now, this has raised some questions because our understanding is that the Europeans have encouraged salmon to or SADC to make a formal request. To the European Peace Facility, but there is a degree of hesitancy amongst some of the SADC member states about taking that route for funding, and there is a preference uh, to go to seek alternative funding, perhaps through UN channels and so forth. 
But there's a certain amount of confusion around this, Tom, because, uh, you know, beggars can't be choosers, so to speak. And if uh, the Europeans uh, are open to considering how they might help underwrite some of the costs of, of the salmon operation, uh, it, it, you know, one would imagine that they would, would, would want to explore that option. Uh, I have heard in the last week or so that some questions have been asked from within SADC about the process. No formal request has been made from SADC, but there is uh, some nosing around to see what might be possible. Now, of course, they're three months behind uh, uh, the Rwandans who put in a request in the first half of December for the European Peace Facility. Now, one suspects, and we saw uh, President Nussi in Brussels in February pushing for the EU to support both operations. Uh, I think it's important to point out that it is unlikely that uh, the European Union uh, would underwrite the Rwandan operation in the way that perhaps they may be expecting or would want. This is not going to be the kind of funding we see for uh, African troops deployed in Amisom, for example, where troop-contributed countries get a certain amount of money per, per uh, combatant. And, 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 and operational costs are covered. It's unlikely uh, that the Rwandans would receive that kind of support. That doesn't mean, of course, that consideration could, could be uh, given by the EU Council uh, to support them, but there'll have to be a uh, unanimous uh, support for this amongst member states. And some of the relationships between EU member states and uh, the Rwanda are, are, are not straightforward. Uh, but with France and Portugal clearly pushing this line, there is a sense that, that a certain amount of money could be put in this direction, uh, which, which would not be unimportant, I think. But this does not preclude some support also coming for, for, for salmon troops uh, as well. It's a bit complicated, the situation. It, it's, it's difficult for the EU to make decisions uh, in a context where they're also trying to get a handle on how are these different forces effectively collaborating for the mission at hand? And also, I think we should not lose sight of the fact that the EU is putting in nearly 90 million euros over the course of the next couple of years to pay for a training program, which is going to begin deploying uh, the initial trainees on the ground in Cabo Delgado in the next few weeks and months that needs to be connected to these joint forces as well somehow. So, uh, exactly how European support will play out in a way that consolidates the support that they're already providing uh, remains to be seen. Yeah, and the um, just to turn to the, uh, the Rwandan issue as well, which um, I think has generated a lot more interest because there's always this suspicion that it's then up there guarding the, the gas project at the behest of Total maybe or the French government. Um, which has always been sort of denied formally, but I think um, makes a lot of sense. Do you think that that's why France is, is particularly pushing maybe for um, EU to, to find money for the, for the Rwandan deployment? Is that, does that narrative still work? Yes, I think very much so. And it would, it would be foolish to assume that there isn't a connection between what the Rwandans have been busy doing, particularly pacifying in areas under their responsibility, which are directly linked to the LNG interests around resuscitation. And, and, and I think there is, a, there is a close proximity between 
France, Total Energies and, and Rwanda on this. However, uh, what was interesting was watching the Total Energies CEO, Patrick Bruyani, in, in, in late January, on the 31st of January, I think, giving a statement saying, we will only start this project again once the, the security situation across the province is stabilized, the IDPs are being dealt with effectively, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that seems to me to be a direct response to growing criticism from a number of analysts inside Mozambique and outside that the approach that was being taken to security by this government and uh, through the support of the Rwandans and so forth was this kind of green zone approach of a, a higher level of prioritization given to security around the LNG sector compared to other areas. And, and in some respect, that's still playing out where the Rwandans, uh, as we've seen in their own PR, are saying, look, our areas are clear uh, and those other areas which are insecure aren't our responsibility, uh, pointing at the areas under largely salmon or fadon control. Uh, so so I, I think that the, the Puyani's statement is very interesting because it puts a lot of pressure to up the security focus in these other areas uh, and also to promote the normalization with the return of IDPs. And we're seeing that feeding into uh, a lot of kind of contradictory messaging around return and so forth and concerns that are peaking around continued insurgent activity in several districts, which we see uh, in uh, the weekly legados playing out uh, in these different areas. So that narrative, yes, is very much in play. And I think it's go that focus and that lens is going to be very much under the spotlight as we move forward. Uh, but it will be something that both the Mozambican state, Total Energies uh, and the Rwandans, I imagine, will be quite keen to disabuse us of. Yeah. And also probably of the idea that um, <clears throat> the Rwandans are looking for a quid pro quo in terms of commercial interests. There's this quite interesting story came out that a company owned by the Rwandan ruling party had been added to a shortlist to win a big engineering or construction contract on the on the Mozambique LNG project run by Total. I guess the the ultimate proof of that will be maybe if they actually win the project in the end. But yes, Tom, I think this is very important, and it, and it goes to a broader set of challenges around transparency on the political economy. What kind of deals are being made? We know the relationship, the security deal, for example, between Rwanda and Mozambique is shrouded in secrecy. We don't know the detail of the arrangements of the conversations that are being held between the Rwandans and Total Energies, uh, for example. We know that Puyani was in, in, in uh, Kigali uh, before he was in, in uh, uh, Maputo, for example. So there's a lot of engagement happening which is feeding this speculation. We know there's been memorandums of understanding signed between the Mozambicans and the Rwandans with respect to trade and investment opportunities. And again, it's a question of what is the, de what is the detail on this? And, and, and this is really what Mozambican civil society and other actors need to be pushing for. So there is greater clarity uh, uh, over exactly how these kinds of interests are playing out. Unfortunately, at the moment, that's not in play. Mm. And the backdrop to this is that um, the insurgency is not currently going anywhere, uh, not going away. 
the um, there's plenty for both deployments to do. I've heard rumors over the last month or so of random presence as far south as Makomir district, so outside of the two districts they're originally given responsibility for. Makomir does seem a particularly hot spot at the moment. And also this battle on the island of Matemo last week, which is outside of uh, either of the foreign deployments areas of responsibility. But it does seem that Sadiq forces um, got on a boat and went across to support the Mozambican forces over there. So it's, it, it's clear that Mozambique still needs these deployments on the ground for the foreseeable future. Oh, I think there's no doubt about that. Uh, I mean, as you can see from the latest uh, weekly in Cavalagada, there's been some mixed messaging about the extent to which Sadak and Rwandan forces are actually operating together. We had reported on the basis of an interview that was conducted with the deputy <coughs> Sabian commander uh, that there had been a couple of joint operations. The Rwandans, in, in, in their presser a week or so ago, denied that there had been any physical uh, action together, that they're, yes, they're sharing intelligence and operational details, but, but not actually on the ground together. But <clears throat> the security, the ongoing insurgency uh, issues and the ins- accompanying insecurity certainly demonstrates a, uh, that even with uh, Rwandan and Salmon forces on the ground, the, these joint forces are stretched in their ability to provide security across the, across the entire province. Absolutely. We can leave it there for now, Piers, um, but thanks ever so much for sharing your insights with us there. Always a pleasure, Tom. Look forward to the next time. You can find Piers' piece in the latest Cabo Ligado Monthly, along with pieces from our other in-house analysts on caboligado.com, along with our weekly report. Sign up to our newsletter at zetamarnews.substack.com or through our main website, zetamar.com, to receive the Zetamar podcast by email. And make sure to share, review and subscribe to the Zetamar podcast on your preferred podcast provider. Thank you for listening to the Zetamar podcast. Until next week, goodbye. Goodbye.